Thank you, brothers. Appreciate that much. All right. Um, just kind of wanted to stay on the theme. I had, I had written some things this morning or this week about how to introduce this particular passage of Scripture and had that laid out. And as God often does, He changes things. And so I couldn't help but think about what we're talking about right now. And obviously, it's been on my mind, it's been on your mind. And I had to ask myself the question if you're like me, you're, 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 you're saying, why is Putin doing all of these things? What is this a real motivation? Now, some of you who work behind the scenes in the government probably have your own answers to this. Uh, but I came across an interesting article. Again, some of you may know more about this than I do, but this was interesting to me. It was actually uh, from an article done just a couple days ago by CBN, the Christian Broadcast Network. A guy was on video talking about Russia in its religious history. And I won't take time to read all of the article, but the, but the bottom line of the article is basically this, is that Putin was raised by a mother who was a devout Christian, according to the article. But if you understand how religion works in, in Russia, there is the Russian Orthodox Church, and it has preeminence most over everything, like a lot of countries do, where it even dictates to the government. Now, they may not say that, but that's certainly the emphasis from the religious standpoint. What happened a couple years ago, though, was when the Soviet Union dissolved, basically as it was in those days, and again just a few years ago, uh, Ukraine took on a religious difference. They split, if you will, and I'm using these words for, for simplicity's sake, into what was called an Orthodox Church or Eastern Orthodox, which was different from Russia. And so that caused a religious divide between them. And the article goes on to talk about how Putin kind of sees himself as the one to bring back spirituality to the country. And so for him, in a lot of ways, this is like a messianic attempt to do what most religions try to do, which is to control people, if it's not from God, by fear and things that whatever is necessary to bring them back under the control of religious thinking. And so the article even went on to say things like this, quotes, this is from Putin himself, Ukraine is not just a neighboring country for us, it is an inalienable part of our own history, culture, and he called it spiritual space. It's easy to see why they say Putin and the state are so interested in religion, particularly when it comes to Ukraine, uh, the author writes, as he sees himself a messianic figure, a savior to reunite Eastern Orthodox churches under Moscow. I thought that was really interesting. So even if it's not correct, at least gives us a little bit of a glimmer of insight into what his mind may be thinking here. And we've seen this kind of thing. History records this kind of thinking in the minds of leaders throughout. And I won't take the time to go through all of that. Those of you who are historians know far better than I do. But if what he's doing is under the name of religion, then that makes it an altogether different situation and a very dangerous situation as well. Because like even the Muslim world, there is those groups of people within that believe that unless we control people religiously, they need to be done away with, right? They need to be ended in their life. And so uh, I thought that was very, very interesting. But really it's just a fundamental lie that he's believing. It's nothing new for humanity, but it's a fundamental lie. And the lie is that I don't need God, right? This is from Genesis chapter 3. I can be God myself. 
But even if the person doesn't really think that way and really believes that they're following God, we know that the motivation is wrong. I'll just do what God would do, and I'll be his tool, his servant, to bring, as I've already said, people under his reign, under the banner of God. Again, that's the Muslim world, at least as far as the, the, um, the orthodox or the people who are the, the strictest in their belief system. And again, the problem is if a per- person believes that, that they are doing a religious work in the name of God, then they believe that they can then have total control over everyone and everything, again, making it a very dangerous situation. Now, again, interestingly, as I said, I think, and I did not know this until we began to put these together, I put these together, the Lord began to show me some of this. Our text shows us from the Lord how wrong thinking is motivated often by Satan himself and how that wrong thinking can grow darker and darker. Okay, so go with me to Matthew chapter 12. Maybe you stand, of course. But I've titled the message this morning. It's a little lengthy, but hopefully you'll grasp it, remember it anyway. People grow in spiritual darkness when they think God wants religion instead of a saving relationship with him. So we're really talking about the fundamental difference between religion and what it means to have a saving relationship with the Lord. So stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 50. And this is going to end chapter 12. We'll be looking at chapter 13 next time. Jesus is saying this, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will be also, excuse me, this is the way it will also be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside speaking to him, or seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. All right, amen. Please be seated. So just in review again, very, very briefly, you know that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing everything that they could to rid themselves of Jesus. Uh, But they were also the people who were the most committed to the moral and religious code of God, believing, again, it was all from, from God. And that's true, but as you know by now, if you've been following along with us over the months, that they were missing the whole point of what God was doing and getting lost in their religion. And I want to keep bringing up that word because that becomes the point that Jesus is driving at here. They were missing God, even in the midst of doing what they believed God wanted them to do. And the reason that they missed him, and for all the reasons, which are for all the reasons that I've already said, is that religion, in its deceptiveness, has the appearance of being from God. This is what makes it so dangerous in the minds or in the hearts of people. Because in the religious mind, doing things in the name of religion sounds like it's from God, but it ends up taking the place of what is really from God. 
It takes the place of having a true relationship with him, which is exactly why, I believe at least at this point, Putin is doing what he's doing. And that should be clear, at least from what I've said so far. If he's thinking he's doing this in the name of God, under the name of religion, then that's a hard war to fight, literally and figuratively. But the truth is, to be religious is really to be motivated by demonic work. Now, I don't want you to get lost in the way I'm referring to religion here. I'm using this in the darkest sense. And that is when religion is not lived out of the heart that is truly from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing wrong with being religious in the sense of the word. We are religious in the ways we do certain things. You show up here on a Sunday morning, we sing songs, I read scripture to you, and we have some routine to us. That's a religious kind of a thing that we do. But it really has nothing to do with where our hearts need to be. And that's the point that Jesus is always clarifying for the listener. So let's go to what he says here. I want to reread, beginning in verse 43, Jesus' words, so we understand more clearly what he's talking about and how a person goes from religion to, be, to being even darker in sin or even darker, moving more into the, the demonic world. He said, and again, remember now, he's speaking to the religious leaders. He has just had a huge tussle with them over the last several situations. And so he's still speaking to them, but, list, but to the people around as well. So when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. And then he goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will be with this evil generation. So let's just be clear, as you have that in your minds now, about what Jesus is talking about. The unclean spirit should be pretty obvious to us. That is a demon, and a demon is nothing more than a worker of Satan, which came from the original fall back when ever that actually happened. We know that from Scripture. We don't know the timing of all that. We do know it was way, way back before man was even created. And what we do understand from this text, very simply, is that a demon has the ability to inhabit a person, which is why the Lord says very clearly, when it goes out of a man, simply meaning that a demon can't go out of a man if he doesn't have the ability to go first into a man. And that should be obvious in the way he says that. But it also means that demons, demons then, and this may be elementary to some of you, but maybe for others of you, it may be new. Demons can inhabit a host soul. There are people that demons can live in and not just people, but we'll see later and we'll be reminded of something that the Lord has already done about how they can also live in another kind of host soul, which would, or a host itself, a living host, which would be the animal. But again, just to be clear, demons can only inhabit a soul where the Holy Spirit does not live. I think that's very important for us to understand. Some people, even as Christians in their immaturity, will think, oh, can I be indwelt by a demon? Can demons affect me in a way that they are in the Bible pictured? Well, no, that can't happen to a person who's truly born again. And we understand that from various passages, just one simply is what we saw earlier in verse 29, actually verses 28 and 29. 
Jesus would say, if you remember this, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? In other words, in that passage, if you remember, Jesus was teaching, I cannot be from Satan and Satan cannot be from me unless the house be divided. He's very simply saying the two are not going to mix together. It's impossible for that to happen. I'm not from Satan, he's not from me, which means the Holy Spirit and Satan cannot cohabitate in the same human being. And once the Holy Spirit is in that person, they are sealed for eternity. And praise the Lord for that, right? That we are secure in him, never having the Holy Spirit to leave us ever again. In other words, there are not times in a person's life where a person has had the Holy Spirit come into them and you or I do something wrong or we do some sinful thing, say something that the Holy Spirit leaves us. That's not taught in Scripture anywhere. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says this in verse 21, He who has established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us, and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. In other words, the reason we know we're saved is not because we've just come up with the concept that I believe I'm born again, but somehow God mysteriously through His divine work and the power of the Spirit reveals to us that we're secure. He has sealed us. He's put His stamp on us. There is nothing that's going to change that. And so it's important for us to understand the distinction of who is or has the possibility of being demon-possessed and who does not. So just understand, if you're in Christ today, if you've trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and no demons will come to dwell in you. They may tempt you on the outside and try to get you to do all kinds of things and make you think things, but they cannot inhabit you and dwell in you. Now, going on with the parable, notice Jesus says the unclean spirit went out. Now, he doesn't tell us why. There's no indication as to what happened here. But just simply by default, if you just reason through this, it must mean that in an unsaved person, a demon evidently has the ability to come and go. There's some kind of free reign here. Now, it can be that it was, I'm saying it being referring to the demon, can be removed in some way, maybe not even by our own choosing, but being pushed out. And that can happen when a person makes a choice to rid themselves of the sin or turn away from some sin. And that happens, right? People are convicted when they hear messages or something occurs in life, and they make a decision to clean up themselves, turn over a new leaf, make some changes in their life. And because of that, with the working of the Spirit behind that kind of thinking. doesn't mean that the Spirit of God has come in to dwell in that person, but the Spirit is giving clarity that there needs to be changes. The demon leaves, or at least for some time. So we're just trying to understand what Jesus means here that the by the fact that the demon actually left. Or it could be that the person was cleansed by the demon uh, by the Lord himself. I mean, Jesus could be simply referring to the times that he actually cast out demons from people, which is what Matthew has shown us several times over here. Meaning, again, that there are times where people will hear the truth of God and demons leave because that person begins to follow Jesus. Okay? But, and this is the big part that we can't miss here, because the person has no real change of heart, this is key, 
because the person has no real change of heart, Jesus, I believe, is teaching here that they leave the door open for the inhabitation of demonic work once again. And this becomes a wicked, wicked situation here, which is really what Jesus is teaching even in the parable of the soils. We'll get to this next chapter as Jesus begins to lay out what the kingdom of heaven is like. In this particular one, we'll see next time in verse 3, he says, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came up and ate them. Now, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was referring to there, and so he had to later explain it to him. And he did in verse 19, and he says, When anyone hears the word of God, or the kingdom, and does not understand it, understand the hearing is there, the mind is engaging, and that's what Jesus is talking about, but they don't understand, then the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. So the Lord is literally saying here that a person can sit under the teaching of God's word, they can receive it into their mind, and even partially, if you will, go into the heart or make an effort into changing the heart, but something is still wrong. There's still not a full conversion there. And so the Lord is saying that the enemy, Satan himself, comes and robs that person of what they have heard. Either way, there's a time where the person was free from demonic activity, as according to what the Lord is saying. The demon has left. They've gone out. And now that the demon is out, notice what Jesus says in the second part of the verse. It passes through waterless places seeking rest, and does not find it. Now, what's the Lord really talking about here? Well, we have to do what we always do, and that is break it down. And so waterless places simply speaks of the underworld or that place of spiritual desolation or barrenness. In fact, the Old Testament calls it Sheol. That was the Old Testament reference to the place of darkness where the spiritually dead go or spend their time until the resurrection that's the place that exists outside of a life being in God or being a part of him. Meaning, if you want to put it in its simplest terms, the demonic world lives in this state of lostness, which includes, according to what scripture tells us, a place or a situation, an area of pain and great discomfort and even torture, specifically pain of the soul, if you will. And that's simply because demons are spirit beings. They don't have a body that they are regularly a part of. They inhabit bodies, but they are not physical in the realm of what we would think of with ourselves. And so this is a soul pain. And we see that, if you remember back in chapter 8, when Jesus went across from uh, across the lake from Capernaum to the region of the Gadarenes. You remember he gets out of the boat and he's encountered by two men who are demon-possessed. And listen to the torture that these men were under. He comes to the other side, in verse 28, into the country, and two men who were demon-possessed meet him as they were coming out of the tomb. So first of all, these men, in their aloneness, in their desolation of soul, have been inhabited by demons that are causing them to live among the dead. I mean, that should be kind of a spiritual indication to us right there. That there's no life here. These men are so dead in soul, even though they are still physically alive, that they are living among the dead. Or at least the picture of the place where the dead live. 
They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. Obviously a reference to how the demons were working in them. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Notice this. Have you come here to torment us before our time? Now, interestingly, Luke, in this same account, in his version, chapter 831, says they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. That's a very interesting thing, don't you think? Why would the demonic world be begging God not to send them away? Well, they know what horror there is outside of the inhabitation of the body of a person. They know what desolation is there. And so they knew it's far better to be inside the soul or the physical body of a person than it is to be in the realm of torment of Satan. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. But I hope that gives us a picture. And I'm not trying to frighten anyone here. I'm just trying to give you the reality of what God is saying to us. That the place of the dead and the spiritual dead is not this happy-go-party-like life. But it is a place that even the demons don't want to be. But folks, that's not a good party, right? If your hosts don't even want to be there. Which is why they, according to Jesus, are seeking rest. It's an interesting statement too, isn't it? And I have to believe that that must mean that there is some some meaning of awareness there within their own minds, however that works in the demonic world. In other words, there's not a life in the darkness of spiritual demons where there is no emotion. People don't die and go to hell and have nothingness of mind occurring because even the demons have this emotional state about them in their spiritual life even while they're going to and fro on the world. There's no non-awareness of the circumstances. In other words, some people will believe that when I die, I'll just go out into this state of nothingness. Well, that is not what God teaches. That is not what is even proclaimed by the demonic host, even as we have it written to us. So even though these demons, though, exist in this, what we call spiritual wasteland, if you will, it has enough sense to look for a resting place but it can't find it. There is no rest. And that's because only in Christ do we find our rest. Amen? It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ that we find the place of rest, which is exactly what Jesus has already affirmed to us in chapter 11 when he said, you remember, to those who were so burdened under the law and the weight of the law that the Pharisees were pushing on them, he says, hey, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll what? I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest, what? For your souls. Rest for your souls. Isn't that beautiful? It was John 10, 10, in that wonderful chapter where Jesus said, I have come that people may have life. And have it abundantly. You hear the words of the Lord this morning. As he's making this dramatic comparison for the people to hear what's really happening in the hearts of people who are rejecting who he is. 
But because a demon can't abide in Christ, they seek rest in the only way that they can, which is, as we've already talked about, through some means of inhabiting some person in their physical body, a person, and yes, even an animal, that's what I was saying earlier, which is what we saw with the demonic possession of the pigs. It starts to make a lot more sense why the demons wanted to be cast into the pigs. That question has often come up in Bible studies as to why did they want to be cast into the pigs and what happened to them after that? Well, after studying through this, I have to believe that in the demonic mind, they were thinking it would be far worse for us to go into the realm of our leader than it would be to inhabit another body. And so it's almost like they're begging Jesus to don't send us there of all places. Give us the opportunity to go into these pigs. Now, I understand that they ran off the side of the hill and, and uh, the pigs drowned and all of that, but there seems to be the indication here, at least of this hellish life that they don't even want to be a part of. Now, if you're like me and you're hearing this, and as I was studying through this, I had to kind of push the pause button for a second of my heart, and I, and I found myself almost being tempted to feel sorry for the demonic world. Well, don't do that, okay? Don't be tempted to go there because the rest they seek is not the same kind of rest you're seeking. The rest they seek is something that they have no ability to have, and they don't desire that same kind of rest. They have no desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that is over. Even those that never were a part of the life of living here, and believe me, when I say, and you'll understand this from Revelation, there are some demons that have been so wicked that God wouldn't even let them out on the earth. But they've stayed in bondage, if you can imagine. Now, the only rest for them is to continue their tempting and infiltrating of people or animals to cause harm and to satisfy their desire to come against the things of God and the things of what God has created. In other words, the devil really only has one goal, and that is to steal your soul from you and to steal the soul from anyone who does not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for redemption and to kill him if God permits. And we see that he only has the permission to do that if God gives him that permission, and that comes from the book of Job. But he wants to do everything, just understand, to destroy your life, to destroy my life. He will work through people like Vladimir Putin to destroy others, even in their innocence, as they're just living life. Why? Because that's what demonic work does. It finds its rest in doing those kinds of things because it cannot rest in its truest sense. Remember the first part of John 10.10, 10, before Jesus said, I have come to give you life, he says the thief, speaking of Satan, comes to do only a couple things. That is to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's what he's after. Again, you think about the two men who were possessed by the demoniacs in the Gadara region. Mark chapter 5, verse 5 says that the man, one of the men was so overcome by the demonic host or the demonic being inside of him that he continually gashed himself with stones. I don't know what that looks like, but I can kind of imagine in my mind. We're told that he was tortured and not to mention in Mark 9 about the man who had the son who constantly was caught up by a demon 
And we read there that he brings the boy or the teacher, Jesus, to the son. And he says the spirit has possessed him and makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. If you skip down to verse 21, Jesus asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he says, from childhood. I mean, now we don't know for sure how old this person was, but evidently this was a significant period of time. And he said, from childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. So there is no reconciliation in the mind or the soul of a demon. There is no peace that's pursued like you and I would consider, but just destruction. And so don't feel sorry for him. And certainly don't feel sorry for Satan. In fact, watch how the demon fulfills his unholy living as we go on here in verse 44. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now, <clears throat> in other words, having evidently no, no poor soul to inhabit, as it's going along doing its seeking, it seeks out the soul that it left. And to do what it can to destroy it even further. Meaning there's some reasoning ability here, even in the demonic world. Which also tells us there's accountability that needs to be attributed to demons. In other words, there is some judgment that needs to occur because they have the ability to discern certain things. And notice we're told by Jesus that when it returns, it finds this soul unoccupied. Swept and put in order. <clears throat> now, the word unoccupied here is really the key to the whole thing, meaning that the soul is vacant. Vacant, evidently, of the Holy Spirit. That's the Lord's emphasis here. But also meaning there has been some change that's occurred in the person. That goes back to what we were saying earlier. Because he said the soul is sweat. Meaning the sin has been cleansed in some way. <clears throat> implying that some form of life is taking shape and order in the person. In other words, good things are beginning to happen. And also because, notice he says, it is put in order, meaning that there has been some evidently genuine uh, reformation here, some change to the person, some moral change, as I said earlier, some turning over a new leaf, a person might say. And that can come from a lot of different things. You know, for some people, it's that receiving of bad news from the doctor. And all of a sudden, they look at their life and they say, I got to make some changes. I need to go back to church. I need to get rid of some habits. Maybe it's from someone that they love. Maybe their spouse or a child has been found to have some disease or Maybe it's for some result of a job loss or something greatly catastrophic with financial situations or whatever. Whatever it is, the person evidently finds it necessary to make some changes. Maybe there's some temporary halt to a life of drug abuse or, or alcohol. Again, finding themselves in dire situations or some conviction of the Lord. This is all what I was trying to say earlier. Maybe through some sermon that they heard. They found in life that the only change that's going to really occur is I need to get religion, as people would often say. And so they go back to church. Somebody invites them. They say, yeah, you know, I really need to make some changes in my life. And so they come and all that's good and all that's right. And that's what the Lord is indicating here. That's the right kind of step. 
Something has caused them to temporarily wake up and to really see what's really happening here. And so going to church, they get more involved in the work of God, perhaps even through giving of their time and their energy and their monies and whatever comes along, again, which are all good and right. They're necessary. But the problem is, according to what the Lord tells us here, is that the demon still has access to the person. Now, why is that? Well, because that person still belongs to the demon. We've already identified the fact that when the Holy Spirit comes into the soul of a person, there is no room for a demon. And so the only thing that could be happening here is the Lord is saying, look, it's one thing to say that you've got religion and that you've made some changes in your life. That's wonderful and good, but here's the problem. You haven't shut the door to the demonic host. And you're still in great danger. Notice the demon says, I will return to, notice the personal pronoun here, my house. That shows possession. This is my place. Now understanding again, repeating all of this so you're clear with this, is that no demon could ever say that if the Holy Spirit is occupying that house. But that's not the case here meaning the person, again, still has an open heart to the demonic world and therefore is still under the control of Satan because, again, the Holy Spirit does not live inside that person. So the Lord's point simply is, just because there have been changes in a person's life doesn't mean the soul is redeemed. That's the lie from Satan. Oh, just go make this change. Go set this up. Go do this. Go make this happen and you'll be fine. And the Lord's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. In the case of the person being only religious, they've never been truly born again. Significantly different. They've not truly been converted. And that's really because they've never really understood the need to surrender the soul to the Lord Jesus Christ that there's only rest and freedom that comes to the person who understands that I can only find what I'm really looking for through Jesus. Jesus said it, right? No man can come to the Father except through me. And it's the Father who gives us everlasting peace, which explains why we've watched people over the years make changes We've seen many people like this. You have people even in your family probably that you've watched with this. Give all the outward appearances of a life that has been changed and surrendered to Christ, even being faithful to church life and church attendance. I can't count high enough the number of times I've seen this kind of thing in my life. But when the troubles end, they don't need Jesus anymore, right? Everything's been fixed. Jesus doesn't need to bail them out. And they go back to who they really are which is demonically controlled because they're still sinful. Like all of us, the difference with us, beloved, is those who truly know the difference is because we have turned to Christ for redemption. This person has never truly been born again. And the real tragedy is they're satisfied with that. They're okay with that. Because if they weren't okay with it, they wouldn't surrender back into the demonic realm and think that they don't need Christ and church life and spiritual living anymore. But again, Jesus' point is, the truth is, their house is still empty. Because there's been no real change. 
and it gets worse. Look at what Jesus says. Instead of getting better, that person thinks they're on the right road because they've now got religion. In verse 45, the demon then goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Boy, that's not a good picture. I mean, it's pretty clear here. What Jesus is saying is that as that demon goes out and he comes back to his house, he brings more wickedness with him, and now the person is much worse off, meaning more deceived, more blind, more closed off, more in the grasp of Satan because they think they're okay. They've bought the lie. They believe that their soul is okay. I mean, look, I'm good. I have what I need. I got three meals a day. I got a roof over my head. I got a family. I got cars. I got stuff. I got whatever it takes. I mean, God really helped me out. And I, you know, hey, when I need him again, I'll come back. But the Lord's saying, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. All you have done is hardened your heart even more. It starts answering the question, doesn't it? Why there are some people who profess at one point in their life and begin to walk away and never seem to be interested in the things of God again? Oh, they think they're fine. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I know he's my savior. I know he's God. I haven't stopped trusting him. But out in their outward life, they have no resemblance of living a life for Christ at all. Again, that's what the Lord is talking about here. You turn away from the truth of who I am and what you really need in your life, then Satan's going to have a heyday with you. He's going to come back in vengeance with full force and occupy what you left open. The reality is, beloved, belief is not enough. James made that clear in chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one? That's good. You do well. The demons also believe that. In other words, you don't believe anything that the demons don't already believe. You know who the greatest witnesses of Jesus are? The demons. They'll tell you straight up who he is. In fact, they have. With belief, there has to be a change, a heart change, not just an outward change. A heart that believes and accepts. Listen to these words carefully believes and accepts that the only way to be truly made righteous is through repentance. That's been the message of Matthew, hasn't it? John the Baptist, repent. Repent. Jesus, repent. Repentance is the key that opens the door to the Spirit of God and pushes out the demonic work. Not just believing in the head, but believing in the heart, who he is, that he died in our place that he paid the debt for our sins once and for all. In other words, there must be a total transformation of the soul. That's why scripture says we must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can I be born again? Can I enter it again to my mother's womb? No, that's not what I'm talking about, Nicodemus. Your spirit needs to be changed completely and only I can do that. And God does that when we open our hearts to him, like the tax collector in Luke 18 who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Folks, listen, that's a transformational statement. That's not just from somebody's head. That's from a heart that's been truly adjusted. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified because his heart was truly changed. Sadly, Peter will say about the people who are religious, 2 Peter 2, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Now, why do you think Peter's saying that? He's probably remembering Jesus' words. When the Lord said, if you think you're okay and you've not truly surrendered your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and your mind and your will and everything about you, then you're in for a rough ride because the demonic host is just going to come right back in. It would be better if you'd never heard the truth in the first place and rejected. And concluding all this, Jesus simply says, this is how this generation will go. Meaning his own people, the Jewish people, the Pharisees especially, the scribes, the religious leaders, you see, they were the blinded of the blind. They were the most in the dark because they had the truth of Christ right in their very presence. They saw his testimony. They heard him. They saw his miracles. They saw all these things, but yet they rejected him. And he says, that's this generation. But he also was talking about the generations to come. That's you and me. That's the people that we live with in this life. Now, to make his final point, and I only need to read this because you already understand this, I believe. He kind of flips the coin here. And I just want to mention this and we'll be done. He uses his family as his illustration point. It's very interesting. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, hey, your mom and your brothers are out here standing outside. They want to talk to you. That sounds like a very wonderful thing, doesn't it? And you would think that Jesus would say, hey, everybody, be right back. <laughs> Don't move. Stay right there. Go hug mom, see his brothers and sisters. But he doesn't do that. Because in his mind, he's making a point. And so he says in verse 40, 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, if you read that for the first time, you go, wow, Jesus, that's kind of hard. I mean, you're kind of denying your mom and dad there. But that's not what he's doing at all. Look at verse 49. He stretched out his hands toward his disciples and he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Listen, there was no one more loving and honoring of his mother than the Lord Jesus. If you watch his life, even at his dying moment, he says to John, who wasn't even his brother, take this woman to be like your mother. Care for her. Nurture her. More than likely, Joseph, his earthly father, was gone long by now, and Jesus, as a, the oldest in the family, would have done everything he could to have taken care of his mom. And so don't think that Jesus is dismissing the family relationship here. He's broadening it. He's saying to us, listen, here's what the demonic world is like, but in my family, all who will come to me become my family. That's what he wants us to know. 
And that's where you will find me, and we will live our life together. I will come into you. The Spirit will come into you, and you will experience the things of rest that you really long for. But you've got to surrender your heart to me. Not just your mind, not just your will, but everything about you. A complete surrender, which Paul will pick up later in Romans 10, and he'll say, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, it starts there. And we saw this before. Remember, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when a person says, no, he is my Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this is not a head reverberation. This is not a head thought. This is understanding at the depths of your soul, this is the Lord, and this is what he did. Verse 10, for with the heart a person believes. And we all understand that, don't we? I mean, I hope you're not married to the person that you kind of sort of like, right? You remember back in the days when you were first dating? Your heart was like, this is awesome. I'm fully engaged in this, right? You couldn't think about anything else. That's what it means. We understand what he means here. Well, that kind of heart in a person results in righteousness. Why? Because they're turning to the only one who can truly change them and save them. And with the mouth, he confesses. Look at this, resulting in salvation. And that's for anybody, folks. It doesn't matter who you are. The Lord Jesus is, is inviting people into his family who will do all the things that we talked about. And don't get lost in the doing. That's religion. Let go of the doing. It's surrender. It's just simply saying, Lord, take my heart. Here it is. Have it and do with it whatever you will. And God will do amazing works. That's salvation. Not in words. Not even in obedience. Listen, you can be the most obedient follower of the Bible that has existed since the time of the Pharisees. And that won't get you anywhere. That's important, but it won't get you anywhere. Experiences are helpful, but they won't get you anywhere. What Jesus is looking for and requires is your heart, the depths of who you are, and then submit to him as Lord and follow him by faith. Follow him by faith through his work that he did at Calvary. Anything else, and here becomes the point of the parable or the story, anything else will cause you to go deeper into blindness and cause you to think you're okay when you're not. Tragic, right? I have to believe, beloved, Vladimir Putin is a perfect example of a man who is following religion but is becoming more and more deceived. Why? Because the door was open and more and more demons came in. And that makes a tragic situation, right? Gives us a little clarity, doesn't it? So how do you fight a battle like this? Well, on the one hand, we have to do what's being done. But for you and me, it means we go to prayer. We have to fight on our knees. And God will respond. Again, like we said in the beginning, God is not unaware of what's happening. He will have the final say. We just pray it soon. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's close, and then we're going to observe communion. And uh, what a fitting time for us to do such a thing. Father, we thank you for always the clarity 
We thank you for uh, giving us insight, even into why we've even watched loved ones and and, uh, friends and and people throughout the years uh, profess to make some change and even with outward appearance show change, at least for a time, but then only to go right back to the way they were and even worse. So thank you, Lord, for helping us to see and helping us to see full well that there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves, but it must be your work. And so, Father, for those souls that are there, that maybe even in the sound of my voice, maybe, maybe there's somebody here this morning that came to turn over a new leaf, thinking that religion was going to do it. And, Father, I just pray that this morning they would hear the fact that religion does nothing. Religion damns. Religion creates further problems. I pray, Lord, you would help them to understand what it means to have a saving relationship with you, that you love them, and you came to open their eyes to who you are. So, Lord, for that soul that is lost this morning, I pray that you would open them to see the truth and that they would willingly open their hearts and simply surrender to who you are. Lord, even if they don't understand all things perfectly, just show them like you've shown each of us who've come to you, what it means to surrender. Lord, thank you for this day as we celebrate each month this opportunity to observe communion because it becomes a picture of what we're talking about. As you gave your body and your blood for us in sacrifice to redeem our souls from the hands of Satan and and our mortal enemy, from demonic possession, Lord, we celebrate again with you with one another, believing that uh, you are still rescuing souls and still have the ability to rescue souls. So as we prepare our hearts this morning, help us to look inwardly because we know we fail. But we thank you, Lord, as your children, that when we do fail, we just, we repent and you welcome us back. Help us to live the lives that you've called us to live according to your word and to daily walk with you, daily examine our hearts, just like the text in 1 Corinthians 11 says, that we are to examine ourselves, continually examine our minds and our hearts to make sure that we are truly walking with you and not of our own flesh. So again, Lord, thank you for this reminder we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn with me to, um, if you want to, or I'll just read it for you. This is our infamous passage, really, the Apostle Paul's infamous passage in 1 Corinthians 11, as he was reminding the church there of what really is important. In this particular context, it's interesting, Paul is going through answering questions about their concerns about things and their misunderstandings about things, and one was the Lord's Supper. And so we come to this in verse 23, he says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, in other words, he'd already taught them about this, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Basically saying, I sacrifice my body physically for you so that the penalty of your sin would be appeased. And so take part in that little cracker, if you will. Simply as a reminder of what Christ has done in his body for us. In verse 25, the Apostle Paul said, In the same way, he took the cup after supper also, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, Jesus saying, my blood was shed for you. I paid the redemption price. My body, my blood was spilt out for you so that the Father would be satisfied that the debt of sin had been paid for all who will turn to me. If that's you this morning, then take part in that little juice and as a reminder of what Christ has done for you, thanking him for his gracious act of surrender. I haven't read this for a while, but let me read verse 27 and and beyond here because it really speaks to what we were just talking about. And that is, Paul now gives a warning. He says, whoever eats this bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that's for the heart that really is not concerned or surrendered to him, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, God will not hold that person guiltless who comes flippantly to the Lord's table and who really has no concern for what God is saying and has done. But that man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And he goes on to say, there have been some among you who have even died because they did not listen to the Lord clearly. Okay, a very serious time. A very serious thing as the Lord took it very seriously to go to the cross for our sake and to free us from eternal damnation. So again, Father, we thank you for this day and we pray that you would be blessed as we seek to worship you and to honor you. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'll stand. Let's stand and do one more. So, folks, this is a, a prayer. Um, Jesus is here so let's sing this to Jesus my Jesus I love of thee I know thou art mine for thee all the follies of sin
in mansions of glory and endless delight. I'll ever adore Thee in heaven so Heavenly Father, we just thank you so very much for your son, Jesus. Lord, we rejoice today that our brother Paul is within your presence. Lord, he's in those mansions of glory with you. So, Lord, at this time, we just ask that you would just keep that on our hearts and our mind of all of those who do not know you, as we heard today, those who will suffer eternal torment. So thank you for the life that you've given us. Thank you for the family that you've given us, our brothers and sisters here. But mostly we thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.